Hi everyone, it's Drew Road here, host of the Broken Brain Podcast. I just want to say I'm so grateful for your listenership. We're just under a half a million downloads since having launched the show. And Dr. Hyman and I couldn't be more thankful for you tuning in. If you have any feedback on different guests you'd like to see, things that you'd like to see changed up in the show, topics you'd like to see covered, you can shoot us an email at support at brokenbrain.com or hit me up on Instagram, Drew Perowit, that's D-H-R-U-P-U-R-O-H-I-T, and I'd love to connect with you. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. We're now on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you again. Super grateful for you. And now on to the show. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perot, executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries. This podcast is dedicated to continuing the conversations that Dr. Hyman and I started during the Broken Brain series. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and most importantly, live your best life. Today's guest on the podcast is my dear friend, Dr. Vincent Pedre. Dr. Pedre is the medical director of Pedre Integrative Health, the founder of Dr. Pedre Wellness, a medical advisor to two health tech startups, and a functional medicine practitioner in private practice in New York City since 2004. He has recently joined the international faculty of the Institute of Functional Medicine, teaching the first ever introductory functional medicine courses in both Peru and Australia. Dr. Pedre believes the gut is the gateway to excellent health. As the best-selling author of Happy Gut, the cleansing program to help you lose weight, gain energy, and eliminate pain, he's helped thousands of people around the world resolve their digestive and gut-related issues. I recorded this podcast with Dr. Pedre while being on the road last week. There's a little bit of an echo in my questions to Dr. Pedre, but I promise you, if you can bear with me, his answers and the content he has to share could truly change your life. Enjoy the interview and welcome Dr. Pedre to the Broken Brain Podcast. Oh, it is my pleasure being here. I'm so excited. Yeah. And it's, I'm so excited to have you on because, you know, when it comes to gut health and the connection to the gut and the brain, there's not many people on the planet that have more of a background and understanding than you. But I'd, I'd love to start off. You know, a lot of our listeners here are new to Broken Brain. They haven't had a chance to watch the whole series um, and episode two in our series is literally called the gut brain connection. When you have people that are referred to your clinic and they're coming in and they have, you know, brain health issues, you know, what are some of the fundamental, like literally like 101, what are the fundamental distinctions, the basic things that you help them understand about how the brain and the gut are connected? Oh, it's so fascinating. I mean, we can start with the gut barrier. The, the lining of the gut, which uh, a lot of people know about the term leaky gut syndrome, right? Uh, or increased intestinal permeability to be more uh, uh, I, uh, more purist, because I hate the word leaky because it sounds like things are just leaking through. And obviously, if that happened, you would die and you become sick and, and septic with bacteria in your bloodstream. But the gut barrier is controlled sort of like a dimmer switch. You know, you could control the amount of light coming in through a window. The gut controls how much can come through it. But what we know is there's this integral connection between that gut barrier and something that we call the blood-brain barrier, 
which is another filter system that protects the brain from all sorts of chemicals and toxins that might get into the bloodstream through the gut. The irony is, is that as the gut barrier becomes leakier, then it affects the permeability of the blood-brain barrier and it starts to make it leakier. So the things, the same processes that can start in the gut first and cause an increase in intestinal permeability, and I'll tell you a couple of them, being on antibiotics, eating foods that are high in pesticides, GMO foods. We know that glyphosate uh, is a patented antimicrobial and changes the composition of the gut. So anything that's changing your gut microbiome, your the bacteria, the friendly flora in your gut is going to affect intestinal permeability. And then add to that stress, catecholamines, the fight or flight response. Well, that also increases intestinal permeability. And if you have increased intestinal permeability for long enough, then you can get something called endotoxin or lipopolysaccharide. Uh, that's the more complicated term, but it's basically a molecule on the surface. So imagine this outer shell of bacteria that mainly hang out in the large intestine. And as they die, they release their outer coatings. And if the gut barrier is more permeable, then we can absorb this endotoxin. Well, the endotoxin is going to go to the blood-brain barrier. And if it gets into the brain, it activates pathways in the hypothalamus, which is the very center of the brain. The hypothalamus, you can think of as like the control center. Everything is getting channeled through the hypothalamus to the frontal lobes, to all parts of the brain. So hypothalamus controls everything from movement, how smooth your movement is, to your ability to form memories, and, and I, both short-term and long-term memory. And if you get something like endotoxin coming in through the bloodstream, because it's coming from the gut, it's not going to come from anywhere else. And it increases, it not only increases blood-brain barrier permeability, but then turns on, it actually turns on genes in the brain that code for pathways that create inflammation within the cells. So that is a direct link because these pathways exist in the hypothalamus, in the brain, and they exist in other tissues too. They're in the liver, they're in the muscle tissue. So there, I mean, we can, there's so many connections, but that to me is, is one of the, the most dramatic connections. And one thing that I found really interesting is that when someone suffers a traumatic brain injury, you know, so you've been hit and lost consciousness, you hit your head, you fell, hit your head, Within 30 minutes of the traumatic brain injury, gut permeability increases. So I just explained to you how the gut can affect the blood-brain barrier, and now I reversed it and told you how an incident in the head, a traumatic brain injury in an accident, actually increases gut permeability. And then you can see these patients, you know, they can be very sick depending on, you know, can go into a coma and their brain becomes inflamed. But... It's, uh, it's a self-feeding process because your gut becomes more permeable. So now you're allowing more toxin to enter your body. Your blood-brain barrier becomes more permeable. So there's a lot of different pathways. And it's, uh, it's, it's not a unidirectional road of communication between the gut and the brain. The brain communicates with the gut mainly through a very one of the longest nerves in the body called the vagus nerve. And vagus, I think, means from Latin um, lazy 
And I think they called it that because it just winds kind of like a lazy river through the body, innervating everywhere from the lower third of the esophagus down the stomach, duodenum, all the small intestine and large intestine. So the vagus is integrally involved in that bi-directional communication between the gut and the brain. So I know your question started in one place, and I feel like I went on a big tangent, but I hope I I sort of uh, integrated it all so people who are listening can understand how important this this connection between the two is. I mean, this is just one way. I mean, we're going to talk about more things. No, it's so great because I think that's the key component. These things, these parts of our body are all integrating and communicating with each other in so many different ways. I want to take it back even a step further and say, you know, we hear this term gut, gut. And for a lot of people, uh, surprisingly, when I talk about, you know, the gut, the first thing that they're thinking is like the stomach, right? People think of like Mm -hmm. their like gut as being like the stomach, but, but help us really understand like, what is the gut and how is it so much more complex in its function than we ever ever thought of? I'll tell you a funny story. When, when I came up with the name of my book, Happy Gut, and I told the, the person that I've worked with in PR for a very long time. And her first reaction was like, Ooh, like you're going to call your book Happy Gut, like gut like is as in beer belly, like that was, and I told her, you know what, we are going to change the connotation of the word gut to mean something different. It's going to represent the entire digestive system. So it's not going to just be the stomach. It's going to be the entire system together. And when I say gut, I'm not just meaning the physical digestive system, the intestines. I'm also referring to the microbiome that lives inside that gut. So we're talking about one of the most complex ecosystems in the body. And that's what to me, and I feel like the word gut uh, really transformed from the the point that, um, I mean, you've seen now a lot of uh, books coming out with the word gut, and it just exploded. Uh, and I like to think that maybe I was part of that, you know, trend that, that changed the connotation. I said, we're going to uh, I think it's it's also such an easy term to connect with. You know, instead of saying digestive system, which is very scientific and it's a lot of syllables, just say one syllable, gut. And that captures everything that you want to say about this this system. It's the entire digestive system together in its summation, including the gut flora, which is so integral. We'll talk about that for not only gut health, but brain health as well. Tell me a little bit about how you got into this. You know, speaking with many other doctors who also study the gut or had to become uh, experts in it to help their patients in functional medicine, you know, they don't stress the importance of the the gut and how even the importance of the, the gut microbiome in in medical school, maybe things are changing a little bit more. Maybe there's researchers that are out there that are trying to change the narrative, but I'm guessing this isn't something that you learned about in medical school. Absolutely not. And I mean, just think I went to medical school. I'm, I'm going to date myself now. It's, it's crazy to say it was 20 years ago when I was in medical school and there was barely any talk of nutrition in medical school. I had to go out and learn it on my own on the side. And I I did a lot of that after I had finished my residency training, in fact, uh, because I felt like there were missing links. But I think now, 
I mean, the word microbiome became the word of the year in uh, 20, I think it was 2016 or 2015, NBC declared it the word of the year. And before that, no one knew what microbiome meant or no one had really talked about the, the gut microbiome. But for me, uh, it's crazy because I grew up with, with irritable bowel. And for many of the people that I've helped, it became the same thing as for them. It just becomes your normal. Like you just think like, this is the way that my life is. I just got the wrong straw and my older sister has an iron stomach. We used to say like she could eat a chili pepper and be fine. And I had a super sensitive stomach and I just thought, well, that's just my genetic makeup. And what I didn't understand is that the rounds of antibiotics that I had been on as a child when I got one sinus infection and then a pneumonia and then another throat infection, I was on antibiotics probably three or four times a year throughout my teenage years. And some of these very heavy-duty antibiotics, I mean, we know, for example, that Zithromax, a Z-Pak, everybody knows what a Z-Pak is. A Z-Pak will change your microbiome for about six months. So five days of antibiotics, six months for your microbiome to recover from it, and the research shows that it never completely goes back to the baseline that existed before that. But you can do a lot of work to get there. And for me, I had been on three or four rounds of antibiotics from when I was 10 all the way through 17, 18 years old. So my microbiome was decimated. I had developed food sensitivities to wheat and dairy. And, and I say this now as the doctor that went through functional medicine training. So it wasn't until my 30s that I realized and was able to go back and rewrite the story of what I understood had happened in my life and understand that my gut issues were not necessarily genetic, weren't just my my composition, my makeup, but they were in a sense, if you think the, the microbiome is, is part of our system. And I started working on healing my gut issues and found that so many things improved from my afternoon fatigue, my ability to stay mentally sharp at the end of a 12-hour day, uh, you know, be as sharp, maybe a little bit tired, but as sharp as I felt at the beginning of the day. And all those things changed when I started healing my gut. And up to that point, the gut seemed to me like the most mysterious or digestive system, the most mysterious organ system because the way Western medicine approaches it is let's treat your symptoms. And that tells you nothing about the underlying pathology. So I just felt like, okay, the thinking is wrong, but I'm not sure how to think about it to know what the issue is until I landed upon functional medicine and really understood and, and learned the underlying mechanism of why the gut goes off balance. And so I started working with patients just because it was my passion. And it was one of those things where you can really make a difference in people's lives by so much improves, you know, from their mood, their mental health, uh, their happiness quotient, you know, their ability to live life the way they want to live it, not ruled by their gut, that the gut to me became the natural entry point. And then as you dive in and you learn more, you realize, well, the gut is everything. It's connected to every disease. And it's the foundation upon which you build a person's temple of health. It's really fascinating. And, you know, in our docuseries, we just scratched the surface of it. But, uh, you know, I really want to take that 
that idea, that concept and turn it into something very practical. You know, you had irritable bowel syndrome and I'm sure you went to other colleagues at the time and asked them questions about what to do. And it's funny, you know, I was reading a little bit about the history of a lot of these syndromes, you know, these disease types that have syndromes at the end. For a long time, irritable bowel syndrome was considered to be something in the patient's head. Like, it's just like, you know, it's, it's in your head or it's like, you know, something that you're dealing and, with. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. And, and even, I'll just say like, even now, if, if you fail the medications that have been designated for irritable bowel, then the next level medication is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which is an antidepressant, anti-anxiety style medication. And they use that to treat people. So you're using a medication that was designed for brain health for gut health, but we also know, okay, so then here we go. Another connection between the gut and the brain is, is all the serotonin that's produced in the gut and more than what's produced in the brain and serotonin receptors all along the gut lining. It's, it's, it's incredible. And I want to, I have a bunch of more questions about that and serotonin being created in the gut and going back to your story about irritable bowel syndrome, that was your journey and just people trying to treat the symptoms. But you know, now as a, as a functional medicine doctor, with all your understanding, the research you do, let's say a patient comes into your office today at your clinic in New York and says, you know, I have irritable bowel syndrome. I've tried everything in Western medicine. None of it's worked. What should I do? How does your approach as a doctor today different than how you got taken care of as a patient many years ago? The difference, the main difference is how deep I will dig to figure out what is going on with this patient. So the history that I ask is in much more depth. And I'm not just looking for like, do you have symptoms that fit into the criteria of some condition for which I can write you a prescription medication before you step out my door and, and just be done with the issue? I mean, that's, that's how the Western medicine works. And when I was more, you know, in the beginning of my training, I can tell you, you are trained as a Western doctor that within minutes of speaking with a person, you're already thinking, what prescription could I write for this person to help them with what they're presenting? And you're not thinking beyond that. So one big difference is I want to go back to when the symptoms started. What is the root? You know, do they come from childhood? Were you born via C-section? Were you breastfed? Uh, did you have a lot of ear infections? Were you on multiple rounds of antibiotics growing up? Uh, what happened when you developed your gut issues at 12 years old? Were your parents going through a divorce? Like, what are the other things that were going on in your life that provide really helpful clues as to what could have happened here? What was the inciting event? And sometimes you can figure it out. Sometimes, sometimes people are not uh, initially com com completely cognizant or aware of you know, they might have forgotten the situation that was the true trigger, and it may take more than one visit to to get to that depth, you know, as you're working with someone. But it's basically like looking under the hood. You know, if you're a mechanic and you want to fix a car, you need to find where the problem is. And the the difference I could say in the old approach is listening to the sounds the car is making, and based on those sounds, you, can, you don't open the hood, but you figure out what's going on. Whereas with functional medicine, you open the hood, you get your arms dirty, full of grease. You're looking at all crevices. A lot of times 
I talk about the stone unturned. And when I see people, I have the privilege of having seen people who have been to more than one doctor. So, and I say that because I learn from what other doctors have done because most of the time the patient's not better. So I then have to put that into my understanding, my decision tree and say, okay, this, this, and this was done. This person didn't get better. So what is the stone unturned? What is the question that perhaps wasn't asked? What is the test that maybe wasn't looked at? You know, what, what is it that was missed that perhaps is the underlying functional cause for this? And you don't just jump to saying that it's all in your head, even though stress is a really big factor when it comes to gut health. And I talked about the fight or flight response and the catecholamines, and that increases gut permeability. So it is a very important key part of any treatment plan is to understand how much stress a person holds in their system and whether they really need to concentrate on meditation, on breathing, on relaxation techniques. Because that, after all, so many years of treating gut patients, I realized that as much as we talk about diet, as much as we talk about, okay, you're going to go on this supplement regimen or we're going to use this combination of herbals, if you don't address the stress factor, you're missing a key component of the treatment plan with the patient. So it's just as important as everything else. And I tell people that often because they understand like, okay, diet, you tell them you have to follow a certain diet and they go out and they do it or they do their best at it. But if I don't tell them that meditation is just as important as the diet I'm prescribing, they often go out, they'll do the diet, but they'll think, well, meditation is optional. It's not, it's not necessarily something I have to do. And yet they've developed a super highway where every time they're stressed, they attack their gut. And yet that's, that's another uh, very strong brain gut connection is uh, people and anybody who's listening knows this. Uh, you have a stressful event and you start feeling a knot in your stomach or you feel butterflies in your stomach or you start feeling like gas and bloating. I mean, it, it, people do it to themselves. So part of, part of the whole treatment plan is to almost like to uncouple that network, to change that so that you have a different way of reacting when you're encountered with a stressful situation. So I feel like I, every time you ask me a question, I end up somewhere completely different from where I started. So you, you, uh, you ring me back in, (laughs) but you're doing great because I think these things, they're all you're unpacking. And I think that the key to this podcast here and what we're always trying to deliver to our listeners is we're trying to present key distinctions that help them change how they think about health. And one of the important points that you're making is, you know, for a long time we've, we've known, now we know how much stronger it is that the mind can impact the body, right? You're, if your mind is stressful, that stress can come up as like a stomach ache or you can, you know, uh, have indigestion or bloating. But you're also saying the opposite, which is more new to people, that the body can impact the mind. And you said something earlier, which was, you know, our gut and our serotonin and how, you know, for, for a long time, even still, most people think of uh, serotonin for individuals who are, you know, dealing with the mood disorders or depression. They typically think of, and doctors present it as serotonin being something that's lacking in the brain, whether they explicitly say it or not. And here you are talking about in our new understanding of gut health, 
how in the gut-brain connection, that, that serotonin actually has a place in the, in the gut. Can you share a little bit more about that? You were kind of hinting about it earlier, but I feel like it's such a fundamental idea for people to understand about the gut-brain brain connection. Absolutely. And there's different, there's different levels to this because we know that if you have dysbiosis, if you have an imbalance between good and bad bacteria, so you have inflammation, you have kind of like an Afghanistan going on in your gut lining, that the brain also becomes inflamed. And a brain on fire is a depressed brain. So thus, we see the connection that it, it's not so for people with depression, for a lot of them, it may be a gut imbalance. And you address the gut and then the brain gets better because you're shutting off the inflammation in the biggest surface area with our outside world. You know, the small intestine, they say, is like a badminton court or almost like a tennis court in surface area. That's a huge contact area. If that becomes inflamed, then the brain becomes inflamed. Signaling in the brain becomes dysfunctional and you can get disorders like depression. But you also, if you have dysbiosis, your, your gut bacteria, the good gut bacteria are not going to be there to produce GABA, which is a calming neurotransmitter. It helps you feel relaxed. And serotonin, which is so important, as you know, is the happy molecule for the brain. But serotonin receptors, there are different types of um, serotonin receptors. And the ones in the gut control motility. That's one thing that they do. And just think of a lot of people who are under high stress. I see women under a lot of high stress situations and they suffer from severe constipation. And that's mediated by the serotonin system. Uh, and a lot of them might be put on serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are antidepressants. But these, these uh, medications can alter the chemistry permanently for some people where you'll never be able to self-regulate after that. It depends. But that is the, that is the connection and, and the remarkable thing that neurotransmitters are being produced by our gut microbiome in probably higher quantities than in the brain. And, you know, this has such big implications because I think depressants, you know, antidepressants, and there's a lot of reasons why people could be depressed. It could be trauma. It could be other things. But one of the things that we're sort of seeing and some of the feedback, you know, I read your reviews on Amazon and people who tweet at you and there's, there's so many people who traditional medication is the main sort of approach that they were given through Western medicine, you know, didn't work and it was really repairing their gut that made a, a difference. Antidepressants are the third most prescribed medication, you know, in the United States and then also the number one reason for disability uh, people not being able to work, which impacts our economy, is is uh, depression is either number one or number two. So this is a fundamental change of an approach to something that's really become a major epidemic for us in our all around the world, not just the U.S. and and it could be it could also be anxiety. And I haven't mentioned yeast yet as part of the imbalances that can happen in the gut. But when you've been on rounds of antibiotics, you can get yeast overgrowth. If you've been on one of the most commonly prescribed medications worldwide, a proton pump inhibitor, which is a medication that lowers the amount of acid produced in the stomach, then you lose the protective barrier that the stomach was to prevent certain organisms, microorganisms from getting into your digestive system and colonizing. And one of them is yeast. So if your stomach acid is suppressed, you can get yeast overgrowth. 
And yeast produces a bunch of really nasty mycotoxins. These mycotoxins cross the blood-brain barrier when it is inflamed, right? So we get leaky gut, leaky brain, and the mycotoxin gets into the brain and disrupts mitochondria, the energy centers in every cell. So the mycotoxin causes mental fog, uh, fatigue, chronic fatigue, and can cause depression also. And some people can cause anxiety. Then if you get, a, if you get an overgrowth of a different type of bacteria that are called clostridia, there's a bunch of subspecies there, and they produce certain metabolites that interfere. So they get absorbed. If they get to the brain, they interfere with the dopamine system and they can increase anxiety. Uh, so it's really fat, you know, all these different connections of an imbalance of the gut ecosystem and how it can change the brain and it could take it in one direction or another. So I just saw a patient recently who came in and she had major gut disturbance and her, she's almost 60 years old and her brain I could tell wasn't working right. And we were looking at, okay, what's going on? What's underlying mechanisms? Because uh, sometimes she would repeat things and she would, uh, I would say something and she would ask it again. I put her on a regimen. We, we got back the test. The test proved uh, that I had suspected she had uh, candida, yeast overgrowth, but she also had the clostridia and she was very anxious. But it was almost like it was almost like an anxiety, like some alien took over her body. It wasn't an alien. It was this clostridial species. So then we treat that and it changes the brain functions because we're removing that metabolite that was getting absorbed into the body. But even when I had seen her two weeks into an herbal protocol, she was already a different person. Like she wasn't forgetting the, the answers I had given. She wasn't asking the same question over and over. Like it's remarkable that just I didn't treat her brain, I treated her gut, and yet her brain got better. It's incredible. And, you know, it's, it's like part of this unpacking is, you know, we realize all the different ways that modern life can impact our gut health. You know, you talked about pesticides and stress and these other components. But in that same sort of instance, we're also, it's also reminding us just how important the gut is and all these functions that we just did not know or clearly know that the gut does. For instance, in your book, one of the things that you talk about is that the gut is our major detox organ. And when most people think yeah. about detox, they think the liver, they think other things, but help us understand Kidney. that. The kidneys, how does the gut play a role in the detoxification of our of, of things that come into our body? The gut is the major dumping ground. It is where the liver through the bile releases all sorts of toxins that have passed through its two phases of detoxification. It's also where we dump out drug metabolites. If you're on a medication, they get dumped into the gut and then you poop them out. Some of them get go through the urine also, so it's not always the gut, the kidneys are a very important part of elimination, but the gut is where we eliminate a lot of toxins from the body. And depending on whether you know, the, you're know you pooping on a regular basis or not, the less you poop, the more toxic you become because if a stool is sitting in your body for longer, then it allows for your body to actually start to reabsorb the things that were moved out into the poop. And sometimes you have bacteria that metabolize 
the toxin that was anchored out. So the, the way the body pushes things out, it's almost it applies a tag to them like an anchor. And that anchor says you need to exit through the urine or you're going through the bile. And there are bacteria who can come in and gobble up that anchor and release the toxin to recirculate. And the longer that stool stays in your system, the more likely that that's going to happen. That's why for some people, even colonic therapy is really helpful when you're putting them through a detox program because you just want to get all the stuff that's inside out. Uh, but even heavy metals are also secreted in the gut. So it's a very, um, there's so many things that uh, pesticides, pesticides that get absorbed and then processed, they're going to be released in the gut primarily. So all these things need to be operating uh, in order to be healthy and uh, to, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of people who are constipated and once they go to their bathroom, it's almost like their brain works better. It's I've true. seen that. I've seen that over and over. Yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Um, you, you mentioned something interesting. I just want to go off on a, on a little tangent. I've heard mixed things about colonics. There are people that are out there that say, "Great, colonics are an important tool that we can use during a detox process." There's other individuals that say colonics are something that we should just get regularly all the time. I know that there's some people mm. in the functional medicine world who study the microbiome who are worried about removing good, good bacteria. And I've had colonics before and felt the benefits of them, but I've also heard some of the concerns. And so don't get them on a regular basis. And I'm always just trying to figure it out and ask around. Um, well, first, for those people who don't know, can you describe what a colonic is? And then number two, would love to get your thoughts on, you know, where it's useful and, you know, do we know enough about it for its long-term regular usage? Yeah, a colonic or what they call colon hydrotherapy is basically a system that puts water into the colon and then by doing that helps wash out a stool that's been in there for who knows how long. Uh, but one of the things that it does is, like you mentioned, it helps with detox. And it can be done in two ways. It could be done uh, through gravity, and then they have systems that might kind of force the water in. It's always better to do one that just uses a natural uh, force of gravity, like non uh, a low pressure colonic that's friendlier for the colon. Because uh, people who are constipated, you don't want to get used to having to take colonics to go to the bathroom. But I think used as part of a detox protocol, colonics can be a very powerful ally to a you know low toxin, uh, low sugar diet, an elimination diet, a gut friendly diet, and the right types of supplements to help with liver and kidney detox. And adding colon hydrotherapy can be an integral part of that, along with maybe even IV therapy. Uh, but doing them chronically, constantly is probably not a good idea. Again, because we don't. We still don't completely know, but I do know some colon hydrotherapists at the very end kind of uh, give somebody a uh, probiotic enema to help recolonize the gut. I mean, ultimately, the gut is the gut microbiome is largely determined by what we eat and what we're exposed to. You know, whether it's antibiotics or toxins in our food supply that that decimate the bacteria, and it's the fibers in our food that help create and nurture a diverse microbiome, which is what we want. Diversity is the key to health. 
you want a microbiome that is as, as diverse as possible. And it seems that it's not about having too much of the good guys, that we also kind of need some of the bad guys there, but we need them to not be present in an imbalanced amount. We need them to be controlled and checked. It seems when you have this very diverse, wide ecosystem producing a whole bunch of different signals, it works better and our metabolism works better, our blood sugar balance is better. And when you decimate it, and all the patients that I've seen with ulcerative colitis or any sort of colitis, they always have a diminished diversity of the microbiome. So I know I diverted from the initial part of the question. <laughs> I know, it's funny. Once again, speaking hey, of, the, of divergence and diversity. <laughs> uh, you're the expert. We want your opinions on all this stuff. Uh, talking about things that are supplemental and are good for you, I want to talk about another uh, thing that has impacts on not just your overall health, but your gut health too, and that's yoga. And you are yeah. a certified yoga teacher, I think I read. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on yoga and how yoga can be beneficial to gut health. Starting with the fact that yoga, uh, unless it's like power yoga or Bikram, which I find still to be very activating, most vinyasa flow yoga is really relaxing for the body, especially if you're doing it with deep, intentional breathing. You're activating the parasympathetic nervous system. And we know that we need to rest to digest that means you have to be in the parasympathetic state, not the fight or flight sympathetic state, which most people are on with all of uh, the stressors that people face nowadays and the ways that we don't let go of stress. So you have to be in a parasympathetic state. And one great way to do that is through yoga and breathing and meditation. Usually yoga is combined with all those things. So I think it's one of the most perfect exercises for gut health. And then also because a lot of twisting and bending postures can help massage the internal organs uh, that can help with gut motility and gut balance. I actually had a yoga teacher in Manhattan who specializes in uh, visceral mobility through the way that you move. And she reverses it in the sense that no normally in yoga class, you're, you're kind of moving from your skeleton. You know, you're kind of helping that. And she has you think of how would you move if it was your liver that was twisting and moving. And even though you're still using, obviously, your muscles and your skeleton, but even just thinking of it differently, how you're creating space for the internal organs, I think has a, a tremendous impact for that. So partly mechanical and the way you can stimulate the, the gut uh, through the, the twisting postures in yoga, but also uh, yin yoga recovery postures that just get you grounded in that parasympathetic state so that food can move through your intestines because the contractions that happen in the intestines are controlled by the parasympathetic nervous system, not the sympathetic nervous system. It's the, the opposite. And reducing stress and having that more you know, stress has such an impact on, on digestion. I used to live in Manhattan. You, you're, you're based in New York City. Your clinic is in Manhattan. We're always rushing around, and not just in Manhattan, other places too. And we eat, and we're immediately rushing or we're stressed out and we're going to the next thing, and we don't digest food the same way, right? Are, are there things that you do, practical things in your own life that um, help to counteract this. You know, you're a doctor, you have a full schedule of patients, you're an author, you're doing interviews. 
how do you slow down and yet still keep up with the pace? What are some of the tips and tricks that you use personally? Uh, one very key one that I've started doing that I think is really powerful, uh, even if I don't have extra time to eat lunch, to once, you know, say I, I step out some days, I go out and get a salad or whatever, whatever it is, I'll stop. And before I eat my meal, I kind of say a prayer or grace or give thanks. And that moment of doing that is shifting the energy and my relationship to the food that I'm about to eat. And just think of the difference to be, like you said, everybody's on the go, getting the food, opening it, starting to eat it really fast, not thinking, being completely unconscious or thinking about all the to-dos that you have to do, how different that is from sitting down, taking a breath, expressing gratitude for that moment, eating that food, clearing your mind and kind of making a pact with yourself that I'm not going to think about the things that I need to do right now. I'm giving myself 15 minutes, even if it's just 15 minutes of dedicated time. I think it, it just by doing that, it changes the relationship with the meal and also eating in community. So when I'm, when I'm with my son, uh, always try to say a prayer before the meal, uh, just to kind of, again, it's like resetting the mind. I mean, living in gratitude, I think is, uh, is really important, but also recognizing that even when your life is go, 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 it doesn't mean that it, there can't be a pause. It could be go, go, pause, go, go. But you can, you can still have a pause in there. And I think that if people are more able to, to do that or uh, some people will eat at their desk but, uh, or patients of mine, and I ask them, well, do you get a lunch break? And they say, yeah, but I never take it. I just stay at my desk. I'm like, well, what if you did take it? You know, like what, what would, how would that be for you? You know, why don't you see how, how different that would be to be able to be relaxed and eating your food? So, and all these things, you know, it's our, it's lifestyle behaviors. It's, uh, you know, if yoga speaks to you. That's great. If yoga doesn't speak to you, like I, I always tell people, you know, do a hobby, do something that makes you happy, that brings joy because happiness, joy, laughter, that's another way to create, trigger the parasympathetic nervous system and trigger relaxation in the body. It's so healthy for the body. I mean, that's, that's another thing that we forget about too, is, is not just the slowing down. It's like having those pauses to engage in the community that we love, our friends, our family, and to laugh uh, because laughter is healing at all levels, multiple levels. Incredible. Uh, you, you know, at your clinic, uh, like, like other functional medicine doctors, it's all about personalization, seeing what people need based on their history. And there's a lot of people that are listening today that, you know, don't have a functional medicine doctor nearby them or just getting familiar with this world. They know they want to improve their, their gut health, but they're sort of sifting through the noise. You had mentioned a couple of years ago, the word of the year was microbiome. And off of that, good bacteria, I mean, marketing companies are run with that. And now everything is like probiotics, probiotics, probiotics. But then you'll see a commercial for uh, a Greek yogurt that supposedly has great probiotics in it, but also has like, you know, 28 grams of sugar or 30 grams of sugar. 
Um, yeah. For, for people that are just beginning the process of thinking about their gut health, you know, they're, they're even asking like, should I be taking a daily probiotic? What are some of the things, one thing you stressed that you just mentioned earlier, which I really want to highlight here before I ask you to expand on other ones is that first and foremost, it's about where your, your diet is and having those good diversity of fibers to build your gut health. What are the other things that we need to be thinking about to really build up that diversity and strengthen our, our, our gut bacteria? Well, first of all, uh, you've got to become your own health sleuth uh, because the food, uh, packaged food in this country is so tricky and can be so misleading. And now uh, it's not just the word microbiome, it's that everybody is on the bandwagon of portraying health through their marketing, through the way that they make the carton look or, you know, the packaging. Uh, so I tell my patients, you have to be a health sleuth. You've got to turn the package around. And the first thing you look at is how much sugar is in this. And what is the serving size for that amount of sugar? Is it a tablespoon? Is it a cup? Because uh, that in itself is really important in the healing process. Because for most people are eating too much sugar. And sugar feeds not just the harmful bacteria, but it also promotes yeast overgrowth. And we talked about all the reasons that those things create problems with brain health. So if you backtrack, then you think, well, sugar is also a big trigger for mental fog and uh, for memory issues and whatnot. So first and foremost, you have to read labels and be kind of like your own Sherlock Holmes. And then secondly, you know, what is it, what's going to create a diverse uh, gut is having a diverse diet, but a, a diet that has not packaged food diversity. It has food that's been made by the earth diversity, all types of vegetables, greens, different colors. Uh, you, you need to mix it up. And another thing that, I mean, studying indigenous tribes like the, the Hadza Indians of Tanzania, uh, you see that their gut microbiome is very diverse in it in large part because of the fact they eat tubers. So root vegetables can be a really great source of the types of fibers that help create uh, diversity in the gut microbiome. So basically not eating a monochromatic diet, but eating a varied diet. And, and in there, I want to throw traditional food preparation or food techniques like kefir and homemade yogurt, or it could be fermented. I mean, now it's not just sauerkraut. Like now it could be like turmeric dill sauerkraut, like so many different fancy versions of it, but ways to get foods that already have live bacteria in them. And it's not that just one thing is going to be the, the, it's going to do the trick. It's the combination of doing these things that are going to keep your microbiome healthy and uh, diverse. And there are also things that you can do after you've been on a course of antibiotics. But I say, you know, that was part of the inspiration for writing my book was, like you said, a lot of people need this type of help, might not be able to afford to see a functional medicine provider, but spending $10 on a book or whatever less it may cost on, on Kindle is to have a huge investment in your health and the advice that's been curated for you from all the, the noise and confusion out there. I mean, that, that's 
that was the big motivation for me to write my book was to help people who perhaps didn't have the means or didn't know how to get to a doctor that, that does that. And a lot of people now, you know, work, uh, distance and there's health coaches that are working over distance, helping people change their, their habits. So there's, so we're in a really great time in the world where information is more at our fingertips and it's easier to find ways to find the care that you need, even though it can be challenging. But I mean, the, the thing that has to shift is people, people need to take responsibility for their health. Because a lot of the work is done at home by what you shop for, what you cook. And we're leaving the paternalistic system of medicine and we're going more towards this patient-centered system where the patient is no longer a victim of disease. The patient is an empowered part of the treatment plan. Mm, Well said. And I think that's really what your book, this podcast, all the practitioners that are in this space are trying to do is give people the tools and information that previously was either unknown or so hard to come across, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago to actually empower them to make uh, decisions and choices. Um, I want to talk about your book for a second here. Uh, What's something in, uh, you know, you're you're really big into research and there's a lot of really great citations in the book and, and you also live this lifestyle and you've been a patient yourself in putting the book together was there anything in the process of writing the book um, that you came across about the gut that even surprised you? Oh, definitely. The, I thought this, this really blew my mind uh, because it really tied together the importance of the microbiome with a direct connection to brain health. And it's a group of short-chain fatty acids, which are metabolic products produced by the bacteria in our gut, we don't produce them ourselves. One of them is called butyrate. Butyrate is a really fascinating uh, little fatty acid that has a broad range of effects in the body because butyrate is gobbled up by the cells of the colon to help power themselves. So in, in one sense, the gut microbiome that produces butyrate helps keep your colon healthy and prevent colon cancer. So, but the other really fascinating aspect about butyrate as being a fatty acid, so it can cross the the blood brain barrier and it gets into the brain and it has control over a gene or protein that controls the winding of the DNA and where it is read. And by doing so, it increases the secretion of something called BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So the butyrate from the bacteria in the gut increase the secretion of a nerve factor in the brain that creates new neural connections. So in other words, your, the health of your microbiome is helping you form and retain memories. Now that to me is just mind-blowing because it, we didn't know this before. You know, this small little chemical produced by the gut bacteria influences your ability to learn. Incredible. What what a windy road of a connection. And there's probably so much more. There definitely is so much more that's going to unravel in that uh, over the next few years. I've heard so many people like yourself say, like, we're just scratching the surface. Like, you know, 
uh, with all this. And we're going to learn even more and more about how important the, the gut is. One more question about your book. Um, since it's publication and release and putting out, putting it out there into the world, it's, you know, it's like your child grows up and you put them out there into the world. What's one thing that's, you know, surprised you, you know, pleasantly surprised you since the book has been um, out there? It could be something big, could be something small, you know, since the book has been put out there, what's one thing that's, uh, that surprised you? About, about the book or about, about anything could be about, about its reception. Could it be about, realm. yeah, it could be about anything about how people are taking the information. I, I mean, I think that, I don't know if this, I mean, I guess you could say it surprises me, although I try to, you know me, I try to be very Zen and cool about things like you, cause you don't want to get caught up in the stories of of this or that, or like, is my book really successful or is it not very successful? But I mean, I just love seeing people post on Instagram a picture of my book that they just discovered it. And here it is two and a half years since it's been published and people are still discovering it as if it's new. And I, and I think this happens probably for a lot of books out there. Cause I know that when I was uh, avidly uh, inhaling all of the books that were coming out in the self-help medical realm that sometimes I would discover a book and then look at the copyright and see, oh, wow, this was or published date. It was published three years ago. Uh, but it seems all fresh and new to me. So I think that that might be one thing. And I, I don't know if this is a surprise because this is really what my, my hope and my intention was for my book. But when I get an email from someone saying, I I did your program and my asthma disappeared or I had gut issues for 10 years and I followed the program and they're like 90% gone and no gastroenterologist could figure this out. And how crazy that it just came back down to diet, you know, and fixing the gut microbiome. You know, it's, it's that complicated and it's that simple. And I think that I think maybe one one big thing, I know I've said a couple of things, but I think one big thing, and this is why I emphasize so much speaking about stress and, and managing the way that you're holding stress in your body, and it, partly because I've had a relationship and, and a self-discovery with this since I was a kid and recognizing that I was very high strung and I was a type A personality, and I've learned layers of it over the years, but I did not appreciate it as much as I've come to appreciate it even after my book was published. And during the process of writing my book is seeing how key and integral stress is like is a thing that moves the needle uh, either away from health or towards health, depending on how you're dealing with it. And as intangible as it is, and we know that stress translates into thought patterns that then get condensed into neurotransmitters and chemicals that are going through your bloodstream. So there is the, from the abstract to the concrete there, uh, it's surprising that it would have such a great impact. But the more and more that I practice medicine, I realize that the mind and, and even just having some philosophy around spirituality or, or a way to unwind from the extreme stress of the modern world is 
a key element in the healing process that if you don't address, you will never heal the person completely. You will, you will get stuck. Well, there's been so many times in my life, you know, I mean, every entrepreneur knows this. You could be having the perfect diet and still be exercising. And those things help, you know, how much worse would it be if we didn't have that? If you're eating the perfect diet, you're exercising and a stressful event happens in your relationship, in your personal life, in your business, and it can hijack your entire processes and you can still get sick and you can still feel um, this gut feeling that just everything is wrong and that stress can manifest into all sorts of um, have all sorts of rever reverberations in your in your body. The stress increases your catecholamines that causes increase in gut permeability. Uh, you get high cortisol, and the cortisol is like a drug to the hypothalamus in the brain. So the cortisol uh, starts making it difficult for you to form memory. So, and people, you may still be too young to notice it, but. Uh, I see people under severe stress lose their memory uh, when they're older, like in their 40s, 50s, 60s. And it's because of the cortisol, it's, it short circuits the hypothalamus. You can't, you just can't register memory. So, and they're like, well, what's wrong with my brain? No, no. First, we need to work on lowering the cortisol, getting you to relax, breathing, meditation, and also make sure that your, your gut is balanced. And that's how we work on your brain. You know, you had mentioned people reading your book and following the protocol in there. Um, definitely want to plug your book. We're going to be linking it up in the show notes and uh, in the email that we sent out to our broken brain uh, email list. Uh, Happy Gut, you can find it on Amazon. It's an awesome book. Um, really recommend it. But there's a little, there's a program inside of there that you help people because everybody's asking the same question after they read these books and hear you talk and see you speak, which is, Okay, so how to get started. Can you give us a little bit of a preview of the gut care program uh, that you talk about in your book? Yeah, so I, I wanted to come up with an acronym, a word that just kind of embodied the, the system and in a way that people could connect with and, and understand. So I finally came up with the idea of gut care, uh, where care stands for cleanse, activate, restore, and enhance. And there are key pieces of the healing process. Uh, cleansing is probably the biggest part because it's removing all the foods, the inflammatory foods. It's removing the exposure to toxins, to GMOs. But it's also, I always, uh, you know me, because I'm always connecting mind, body, spirit. It's also about removing negative thoughts uh, or, or having gratitude as an anchor to get you away from habitual negative thinking. Uh, so we want to cleanse the brain. We want to cleanse uh, the body physically and assist in the cleansing process by supporting the liver and the kidneys and elimination. And then activate is about activating the digestive system, making sure that you're making sufficient amount of acid in the stomach of enzymes to break down fats and proteins and carbohydrates, and if not, to add key nutrients that can help with that or even fish oils to bring down inflammation. And then restore is restoring the gut microbiome through probiotics. So it could be supplements, it could be probiotic foods, and prebiotics, so those undigestible carbohydrates we call fibers that 
feed the gut microbiome and help it proliferate. Very key and important pieces of the healing process. And then enhance is all about healing the gut linings. Most people with food allergies, food sensitivities, uh, if they are experiencing chronic fatigue, muscle pain, mental fog, any chronic illness is going to be linked to leaky gut. So really working on healing the gut barrier. Uh, and that was one other thing in cleanse is getting rid of any bad bugs that are in the gut. So that that's the complete system. And I like that it lives under the word care because just over the years of seeing so many patients with gut issues and I, I see there's a commonality. They're usually the ones who care for everybody else but themselves. They always put themselves last. So part of the, the healing process that we talk about is, is creating more balance in life and not seeing self-nurturing as selfishness, but actually as a way to enhance yourself and, and be the best version of you in the world. I love it. And I want to commend you for really taking this topic and being one of the pioneers in this space to really put gut health on the map. Obviously, you know, there's, there's so many things in functional medicine as practitioners, uh, yourself, people like Dr. Hyman have known for so many years, but it's like, how do you translate in a way that's not only easy to understand and straightforward, but still has depth, but, but as also, it has to be sexy because people don't want to be doing anything that's not fun. And it has to be exciting. And, uh, you know, when you look at your branding and your packaging and everything like that, I think it really sort of is inviting and it takes a topic that can feel very serious and bring some, uh, playfulness, uh, to it. Uh, so Dr. Pedrick, where can people find out more about your work and, um, some other things that you're up to? They can go to happygutlife.com and there you can join my newsletter. I try to send out at least a weekly newsletter with information about uh, gut health. Uh, we do a recipe every month. And I also talk a lot about intermittent fasting, about keto diets and their effect on gut health. So everybody's interested in those. And I've uh, become really interested in, well, what is it doing to the microbiome? How is it? Is it beneficial? Is it not beneficial? You know, the uh, so if they visit happygutlife.com, they can learn more about, uh, what I do and, and the protocol. And, um, there is a free gift if they want to download, if they just go to happygutlife.com forward slash gift. Um, I always like to give something away and it's basically a, a quick start guide that tells them how to do the, the happy gut diet, the cleanse. Uh, they don't even have to buy my book, but it, it would be nice if they go out and, and get a copy for the more complete picture because, it, of course, it has to be fun. It has to be easy to do. and But I think also people are more likely to do something when they understand it. So it has to be explained in a way that the lay person can understand. And that's, that's something that I, I try to do. And hopefully when people listen to this, they'll, they'll have a lot of takeaways and felt that uh, I explained it in a way that they could understand because we talked about some pretty complex science. Yeah, I think that uh, uh, you've definitely given some nuggets and distinctions that help people at least get the basics that now they can build on further by uh, reading your book and checking out your articles. So I want to thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to to be here and talk to 
about this incredible topic. Absolutely. Dr. Pedre, honored to call you a friend and uh, thanks for joining the Broken Brain Podcast. My pleasure.